And then there were eight. Just eight teams left in this 2023 African Cup of Nations. We are officially on the eve of quarterfinal play. Uh, my name is Maher Mazahi. I'm your host of this African Five-A-Side podcast. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, please remember to leave uh, a good rating for us on the audio streaming platforms if that's how you're listening to it as well. As always, this podcast is brought to you by the good folks over at africasacountry.com. So if you haven't checked that out, please do because we have a really, really good few articles in the chamber, including one on a sociological breakdown of Angolan football that I think you guys are going to absolutely love from our friend Uriko Costa, who, who previewed the Angolan national team on his channel a few weeks back. So today what I wanted to do is I wanted to break down each of the quarterfinal matches and I wanted to do it with a lot of confirmation bias, meaning I have an idea of how these games are going to go. But what I did is I did a bunch of statistical research and I'm going to use that to sort of <laughs> explain why I think what I think. Um, so let's start with um, Mali versus Cote d'Ivoire, the biggest match of the quarterfinals for me because it's the host nation that's playing, but not just because it's the host nation that's playing. Um, this is going to be an absolutely fascinating match for several reasons. The main reason is that they're playing in Bouaké. And for those that don't know, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, they had a pretty brutal civil war. And what happened was that you had a divide between the Christian south of the country and the Muslim north of the country. And the, much of the northern regions were held by rebels. Um, and their capital really in the north was Bouaké. Um, and it really took, the football team was a huge part of this. Didier Drogba was a big part of this. It's a famous story. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. Um, but basically what happened was the national team, you know, called for peace and unity. Um, and when Didi Drogba won his Ballon d'Or or when he, uh, when he, uh, yeah, when he won his Ballon d'Or, he went to Bouaké to present it to the people up there, you know, as a, as a sort of peace offering. Uh, and then he pushed the, na the national team federation to play a, a match against Madagascar up there as well uh, the very next few months. And so... The stadium became, you know, a place where they signed, you know, a peace deal. It became Stade de la Paix, um, which is the Stadium of Peace. And for them to be playing there at this moment in time where the entire nation is behind the elephants, I think is really, really meaningful. It's a strong symbol, you know, um, because it's, it's palpable if you're here. The mood between, you know prior to their last win against Senegal and now it's it's a huge lead it's it's different it's night and day before the match against um Senegal everybody was depressed uh there was no clear idea of what was happening with this national team because you know Emers Faye the coach was he really going to be the coach were they going to bring Hervé Renard uh he never coached a match before they had just been humiliated 4-0 by Equatorial Guinea at home all of these things were on people's minds. And then you're playing against the defending champions. And then all of those factors, the fact that they overcame them and went on to beat uh, Senegal in Yamoussoukro, that completely changed everything. And now all of a sudden, uh, people think that Cote d'Ivoire can win it again, you know? And so for them to have this national unity behind them, this spirit, this love, and for them to go up and play that match in Bouaké, well, what a storyline. Only only sports can, you know, produce these kinds of storylines. Let's add an, another extra sociological dimension to it, though. Bouaké is only six and a half hours from the Malian border. So uh, it's full of Malians in the first place, you know, and the north of the country is as well. 
Um, and so you know you're going to have a lot of Malians that go to the match. Mali has had very tough 10 to f- 10 years or so, yeah, 10 to 12 years uh, with their civil war that's happening right now. And so uh, the national team really is a place where the entire country can, can unify. And they would love a win. It would mean so much to their country at the moment. And they, doing it with so much visiting supporters in the stands would be, would be very, very special as well. On top of all of that, there's a lot of cultural exchange. So, for example, two Malians were born in Cote d'Ivoire, Yves Bissouma and Moussa Dumbia. Dumbia was born and raised in Bouake, even though I do think Dumbia is ethnically Malian, whereas Yves Bissouma is actually ethnically Ivorian. He's 100% Ivorian. Uh, he just left the Cote d'Ivoire very early on, uh, I think at the age of 12, 13, maybe 14. Um, and he went to go play at the JMG Academy in Bamako. And sort of out of you know rec- reconnaissance to uh, Mali and the opportunities they gave him in football, he continued and played for the uh, Eagles of Mali. So that's going to be an interesting storyline to <laughs> interesting storyline to sort of observe. Remember, Yves Bissouma played against Cote d'Ivoire before at the 2016 African Nations Championship, and he scored the winning goal, the sole and only winning goal. So uh, that's another sort of dab of hot sauce that we can add to this fixture. Um, these are also the two youngest teams with an average age of 26 each. And so when I think of that, I think hmm, inexperience, I think of, you know, teams making big mistakes, and that could definitely be a major factor in this match. So let's do a quick statistical breakdown. I think it's surprising to see how many categories Cote d'Ivoire are leading in out of the teams that remain in this tournament. Uh, they have the most ball possession in this tournament. Actually, Mali have the second most ball possession. So Cote d'Ivoire with 62%, Mali with 57%. These are also the top two sides that make the most passes per 90 minutes in this tournament. Uh, 381 passes per match for Cote d'Ivoire, 376 for Mali uh, per 90 minutes. Um, Mali lead in sort of challenge intensity, which is a metric which counts tackles, interceptions, and duels, uh, com- you know, completed or accomplished within one minute so you take those you you divide it by minutes and uh, you get the you get a a very high number from Mali they're leading the tournament in that and so when I look at all of those three statistics for me that's indicative of a midfield battle Uh, and when you look at the two midfields of the two teams you have the two strongest midfields in the tournament Um, Côte d'Ivoire had the strong midfield from the beginning with Seko Fofana, Ibrahim Sangari and Franck Kessier but Emers Fai, the new coach, he made a really important move last match when he moved Ibrahim Sangari out and he moved Jean-Michel Seri in. And when he did that, I thought it brought a lot of more balance to this midfield. Um, and I think they found, you know, the right combination uh, for Les Elephants, even though Franck Hessier had a great uh, cameo when he did come on. So Cote d'Ivoire are, are locked in midfield and then Mali are playing this 4-4-2 with a diamond midfield. Mohamed Kamara is at the base. Lasana Koulibaly and uh, Amadou Haidara are in front of him. And Kamari Dumbia, Kamori Dumbia is the, the tip of the of the diamond, kind of playing in that number 10 role. Um, and I think this makes sense for Mali because they have, you know, overall the most depth and talent in the central midfield position. So how do you get all of your strongest players on the pitch? You play a 4-4-2 diamond. And that's essentially what they're doing. However, uh, let's talk about some differences with these two teams. First of all, the build-up play is a little different. 
Cote d'Ivoire make a lot of passes and have a lot of possession, but they like to play short. So the first pass is usually, usually it goes to Ibrahim Sangare, you know, who's playing at the base of the midfield, or now Jean-Michel Seri, who does a good job of turning, you know, when he receives the ball, very good job of turning quickly. Um, Cote, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, for example, they have the most, the player with the most passes in this tournament, Evan Indica, so he's a center half. Uh, and Odilon Kosunu, who only started last match, so he's not going to be uh, not going to have similar statistics to Evan Indica, but he's uh, top five in accuracy of passes. So they have strong, you know, build-up play from their center backs into the midfield. Whereas Mali tend to play, uh, th their first pass can be into Mohamed Kamara, into that base of the midfield diamond, but they also play a lot more balls long. So Sekou Yakate, one of their center halves, alongside Kiki Kuyate, he's second in long passes through through balls. Um, and Mali are like, one of the sides that dribble the least also. So they're not going to carry the ball that much. They'd rather play it long um, to Lassin Sinayoko, um, and that tends to work. So how do we see this match going? What are some of the duels that I'm paying attention to? Number one for me is Simon Adingra and Sebastian Allaire versus Hamari Traore and uh, the Cote d'Ivoire center halves. Why those two in particular? First of all, if you were at the match yesterday, you saw the, the or not yesterday, but when... Cote d'Ivoire played against Senegal. You saw the lift that Simone Dingra and especially Sebastian Allaire provided the Ivorians when they came onto the pitch. It was fantastic. Very, very interesting. Um, it was more than just their footballing qualities. It was like, ah, now we have our players back. And it made a big difference. So Simone Dingra was starting, was playing on the left wing. And the reason why I picked him is because Mali played that 4-4-2 diamond. And as a result, they tend to be more susceptible in the wide areas where you don't have traditional wingers, you know, defending. Um, I think Adama Traore and Lasinsinoka do a decent job of tracking back their forwards uh, or their strikers. But what, what, how Cote d'Ivoire can attack them, especially Amari Traore, who tends to bomb forward, uh, is they can maybe get behind Amari Traore or, um, you know, get into those wide areas, force the, the diamond shape to be pulled out of position, and then maybe they can feed those balls into Allaire. Um, who's going to be battling alongside Kiki Kuyate or Sekunyakate, the, the Malian center halves, who I don't have a lot of trust in, you know, unlike the Ivorian center halves now with Kasunu in, who I do trust a little bit more. So that's one uh, battle I'm looking forward to. The other one is uh, the bat the midfield battle that we spoke about before. Jean-Michel Seri started last match. He's going to be probably up against, if he's fit, Yves Bissouma. Yves Bissouma playing against his country of birth, and, you know, the country of his family. Um, and Jean-Michel Seri is, is going to be marking him in that sixth position. Yves Bissouma should be at the at the tip of the diamond position, uh, if he's fit, because Bissouma did contract malaria earlier on in this tournament. And um, as a result, I don't think he's been fit throughout the tournament, you know. Um, but that midfield battle, especially that that individual battle, could be very, very interesting. Even if it isn't Bissouma and it's Kamori Dumbia, I think that could be very good because Kamori Dumbia has been one of the breakout young players of this tournament and uh, I think he has three assists already um, and he's done a really good job uh, the player currently at Brest in France so um, that's really my breakdown of the match I think it's going to be a match where you know both sides are battling for possession where Cote d'Ivoire can attack through the wings quite effectively whereas uh, Mali are going to be uh, more attacking, I think, vertically and diagonally. 
Lassine Sinayoko, their striker, has been involved in four out of five Malian goals. He's had a great tournament, and I don't think anybody's expecting him to do this well. Um, and even three of the four goals that he was involved in, they come from diagonal runs into space between the center half and the fullback. And so, you know, Gislan Konan and Serge Aurier are going to have to be watching their backs because Sinayoko will make that run. He'll drag the center halves out of position. Sometimes he'll beat the center half and continue towards goal. Or sometimes after that, what he'll do is he'll just uh, find one of his teammates. So really, really interesting match. Um, I just think that when we talk about intangibles in football, you know, I'm a big intangibles person. Cote d'Ivoire going back to Bouaké. I think, I think they're going to pull through an extra time. So Cote d'Ivoire are going to be my winners of this particular match. Uh, let's move on and talk about Angola versus Nigeria. Nigeria are now the bookies and the betting favorites. I don't bet, but I think that's an interesting thing uh, to note, even though I don't think bookies always, you know, I don't think they know African football that well, to be honest. Um, I don't think they have the right people working for them. Um, and these two sides play similar. You know, Angola, uh, Nigeria will play a 5-2-3, Angola will play a 4-3-3. But look at the amount of ball possession they usually have. Angola, 44% ball possession. Nigeria, 45% ball possession. Angola, 11 shots per game. Nigeria, 12.3 shots per game. Uh, these are also two of the top three sides in terms of XG after Cote d'Ivoire. So they're similar sides where they don't really um, have, they haven't had much of the ball, to be fair. Um, they've been sitting back a little. They have played against teams that like to monopolize possession, like uh, like Cameroon, like uh, Algeria. So maybe that's part of what can explain those statistics. Um, so they like to sit back. They have a similar style, but then when they attack, they're lethal. That's the main. That's you know the main thing. They're very vertical when they attack. Um, there's the statistics are there's a difference in the statistics. However, Angola are the most efficient team in the tournament. They have nine goals. Nigeria have five goals, and they haven't been as efficient. Um, I'm going back to that ketchup analogy that Nigeria's coach Jose Pissero used. He said, sometimes when you squeeze the ketchup bottle, a little comes out, and sometimes when you squeeze the ketchup bottle, a lot comes out. And so what Nigeria's been doing is they have been creating chances. Osiman has the most shots, the most headers in the box, the most aerial duels. His work rate has created goals, but he just hasn't been able to score the goals. And sometimes I th this could be the match where they squeeze the ketchup bottle, and you have you know, too much ketchup drenched all over your fries and you don't know what the heck you're going to do with it. So Nigeria, you know, I think it's coming for them. They just need maybe Osiman just needs that first one and that confidence is going to kick in. And once that comes, then I think they're going to be very difficult to stop. The main difference, so both sides are creating a lot of chances. Nigeria is creating more chances, but is scoring less than Angola. Defending is where there's a difference. Nigeria have conceded the least amount of goals. They've just conceded one goal. Angola have conceded three goals, but Angola have also conceded the most shots against with 56. So uh, I think they've only conceded three goals in Angola, but they've had to play Namibia and Mauritania, sides that, you know, are not really known for their goal scoring, sides that have his, probably the worst attacks in, 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 the, in the tournament. So the fact that Angola is conceding so many shots, despite the fact that they're not having that much possession, that's a warning sign for me. <clears throat> That's really why I'm going to end up choosing the Nigerian Super Eagles in this match. Um, so they're similar sides. Angola finishes better. Nigeria defends better. But Nigeria, you know they're going to start finishing well soon. So they're my favorites here. Um, just a, a quick one on the um, matchups to look out for. You have Jelson Dalla against Ola Aina. Jelson Dalla has been uh, the player of the tournament, maybe we can say. 
you know, he's missed the match, but he's already uh, leading the tournament in goal contributions, goals and assists. Um, he scored goals in ways that I didn't think he was going to, you know, heading a set piece. Uh, he scored one on a corner kick. But on top of all of that, just what he means to this in golden side in terms of ball progression and, and skill is, is you know, unparalleled to, to anybody else. And he's going up against Ola Aina, who's been Nigeria's best defender, maybe alongside Calvin Bassi. Truth brings a lot of leadership, but Ola Aina, wow, 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 wow. What's been impressive about him is his dependability, his ability to mark, you know, very talented attacking players like Ivorian players out of the game. And then in the 90th minute last match, he's still sprinting. Despite the fact that, you know, when Nigeria have possession, he has to go all the way to the to the defending line of the opposition. And when they concede possession, he has to get all the way back. And, and uh, he had to defend, you know, those crosses on the width from Cameroon. So he was going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And then in the 90th minute, he's still sprinting. What a tournament. What a tournament. So that, that matchup is going to be fascinating. The second matchup that I think is going to be interesting is Osimen against Kialonda Gaspar. Kialonda Gaspar is Angola's star center half. But last match, he's the one that gave up. You know, It was his fault that uh, Neblu was sent off with a red card, the Angolan goalkeeper, because he, he got caught you know, with the ball at his feet, got stuck under his feet. I forget the Namibian player's name, number 10, I believe, or number 9. Uh, just a youngster, 21 years old. Uh, I want to say it's Nezeu, but I'm not sure. Tries to chip the Neblu. Neblu handles the ball red card. So Gaspar is a ball-playing center half. He's one of the players in this tournament that has played the most passes, similar to Odlan Kasunu. But he's going to have to watch himself because Victor Osimen, there's a, a video compilation that just came out a few days ago about him just pressing, 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 pressing. Like I said in the previous podcast, it's like the rearview mirror, you know, that you have in your car where it says, you know, caution, this object is closer than it appears. That's Victor Osimhen. If you turn your back to him, he's with those long legs and those long strides and that aggression. He's going to make you pay. He's going to, you know, nip the ball from you and 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 score a goal. So center halves, it makes them nervous, you know, in possession. They're going to have to get rid of the ball quickly and they can't take any chances. I'm sure Pedro Gonçalves told that to his team, but that's another matchup that I'm looking forward to is Victor Osimhen versus Kialonda Gaspar. But Osimhen does need a goal. I think sooner or later he's going to have to he's going to have to score. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the other two matches. We're going to go, oh, this is going to be very very long. Jeez, 20 minutes. Okay, let's talk about the other two matches. Cape Verde versus South Africa. Um this is going to be in my opinion the closest match of the quarterfinals. Um, two similar sides. They both play 4-3-3s. Uh, maybe play the most technical football in this tournament. They both like to play the ball out from the back very well. Uh, you know, with Ronwin Williams, the ball-playing goalkeeper. Um, and then Cape Verde, they mostly do it with their center halves. Logan Costa, who's been uh, another young star in this tournament. Just 21 or 22 years old. And he's probably been one of the best defenders. Um He's getting so much attention from big European clubs. Uh, the center half currently at Toulouse in France. Uh, Cape Verde, like, yeah, they have 54% possession on average. South Africa around 50. Uh, Cape Verde have eight goals, second most in the tournament. South Africa conceded the least amount of, second least amount of goals with two. But they have high XGA, which means teams do have chances against them. But they haven't really conceded. One of so part of that is due to some great last-minute defending from players like Mvala. Uh, part of that is due to some great goalkeeping from from somebody like Ronwin Williams. Um, but they are conceding chances, so that's 
little bit of a little bit of a red flag in my mind. You know, Vala, for example, has the most interceptions, which is a statistics. Interceptions at times could be could be indicative of the fact that you know you have to you're making last ditch attempts. You know, um, I don't know. South Africa do get a lot of shots on target, 4.8, uh, but haven't necessarily scored too, too many goals. People are praising Evidence Makopa because, you know, he's doing uh, a lot of the, the the work, the brawn, you know, the muscle weighing on opposing defenses. Uh, I don't have a lot of trust and faith in Evidence Makopa just because even the goal he scored last time around, he was a little bit lucky, right? I mean, he shot it and it goes through the goalkeeper's legs. I don't have faith in his finishing ability. I think, sure, he can be a handful at times, but is he really going to trouble Cape Bird? Maybe he proves me wrong, and maybe he does. I'm just not that confident about it. I think if South Africa are going to win this match, it's going to have to come from a moment of individual brilliance, whether that's a Taboa Mokwena long shot, whether that's a Percy Tau set piece or a Percy Tau through ball. Uh, Temba Zwane is definitely capable of providing a goal for me. Um, but because this is so tight, because I have so much faith in Cape Bird's you know, uh, top six, top six uh, players, you know, whether it's Kevin Pina, who's been one of the best midfielders in this tournament, Jamiro Montero, DeRoy Duarte, Bebe, Ryan Mendez, and uh, who's the, uh, Jovale Cabral. They're so impressive. And even Tavares, the young striker that comes on after, he's so annoying to deal with because he's... He, He's what evidence Makopa should be, in my opinion. The way he harries down defenders, he, he's way faster than Makopa. Uh, he's won penalties. He's he scored goals. Um, I think it wouldn't be surprising to see Tavares start a match sooner or later. But anyways, because it's so tight, because South Africa conceded a few more chances. Um, actually, they both concede chances. Something just tells me that Cape Verde have it in them to, to get past South Africa. I, I know I said Bafana are back. You, Bafana, you know I love you. You know I love South Africans. Some of my favorite colleagues are from South Africa. I hope I'm wrong about this because I would love to see South Africa in the semifinals against Nigeria. <laughs> uh, that rivalry. I hope I'm wrong. But I do think Cape Verde, if there's going to be an upset in these quarterfinals, it should be Cape Verde. So let's talk about the final fixture. Uh... The final preview, DR Congo versus Guinea. Uh, DR Congo played a 4-2-3-1. Guinea will play a 4-3-3. Uh, I was at the Ebimpe Stadium where this match is going to be played for Guinea versus Equatorial Guinea. And what, maybe some of the insight I can provide for you guys there is that the crowd noise and the support for Guinea was really impressive. I don't know if that's because maybe there were some Ivorians mixed in and they didn't like the fact that Equatorial Guinea beat them 4-0. I think that's part of it, but I think that's just part of it, maybe 20% of it. The rest of it was a big Guinean community here, um, and they made so much noise and they created, they generated a fantastic atmosphere. And so the fact that they're playing in that stadium again, that's a real, you know, again, intangible. That's that's a point for, for Guinea. Um the other thing I would say is that I really enjoyed watching the unity from both sides uh, after their wins. Um, even in the press conference between journalists, the coach, uh, players, the Guineans, they were so elated. You could tell it meant so much for them to, to finally get you know a win in the knockout stages after so long for them to do that and make it to the quarterfinals again. Um, 
in a match where I thought they were outplayed, especially in the first half. Uh, up until Equatorial Guinea had, had a man sent off, um, I think it showed a little bit of resilience, and that's what they were looking for from, from their team, a little bit of fight and a little bit of resilience. And as a result, um, you know, I think that's going to be something that they're going to take into this match uh, and, and is going to be a, an asset for them. The one thing I would say about Guinea is that I think they have a selection headache now because the players that got them to this point were young players. And then, you know, I think in that third group stage match, they, if I'm not mistaken, uh, throw in a lot of more experienced players. Um, and then they lose that match. And then they still qualify to the round of 16. Round of 16, they, they go back to a lot of younger players, players like Ibrahim Diakite, the right back, who's man of the match. Um, and they they win. But they also win because they throw on Francois Camano, um, Nebi Keita, and Cyril Girassi. You know, it's like luxury substitutes, you know. Um, and those players had a hand in Guinea winning that match against Equatorial Guinea. They changed the game when they came on. And so now do you re reward the veterans and do you start them from the very beginning? So I think I, I don't really envy Kabadiawara and the selection headache he's going to have uh, for this match. Um, DR Congo, let's talk about the, the Leopards of DR Congo. Uh, yet to win a match. Draw, draw, draw. Extra time. Um, they have three goals on 14 shots per game. Guinea have three goals on nine shots per game. If you want, DR Congo are yet to win a match, but for me, Guinea are yet to impress me. That's that's I think the main difference. That's why I'm I'm more, I'm more uh, encouraged by DR Congo. Uh, DR Congo are a side that play very vertically as well. Uh, unlike maybe Nigeria or Angola, though, who will, especially Nigeria, who will survive on a lot of long balls to Osimhen uh, and to their fullbacks, those diagonal passes. DR Congo are vertical, but they play the ball on the ground. You know, they have the highest amount of progressive passes, uh, second most progressive runs. They have the most through passes. And what they do, if you watch the match against Egypt, for example, almost every single player, when they get the ball, they're not looking horizontal or backwards. That's like one of the biggest problems of the, you know, the Algerian national team. DR Congo, when they get the ball, they're looking forwards. They're looking to see how they can progress the ball and progress it quickly. And that's what makes them so dangerous. Um, they tend to then lean to the left of their uh, formation. Uh, they have the most crosses in this tournament, and especially the most crosses from the left flank. Um, it's Arthur Masuaku who has you know the fifth most passes in this tournament. The first, his first and most progressive crosses, uh, first in uh, crosses, and then Ilya Meshek is second in crosses. So they're a side that you know are gonna advance, advance, advance. Once they get to the final third, the ball usually finds itself on the right or the left flank, mostly the left flank, but also on the right flank through Meshek. And then they're going to put a lot of crosses in. I don't think they found great success with those crosses. Um, I think part of that is maybe because they're still sticking with Cedric Bakambu, and he's not somebody that's going to attack the ball in the air. I would much prefer if they use somebody like Fiston Mayele or even Simon Benza, who are much more aggressive, uh, fresher, more intense, more ambitious strikers. Um, for that kind of game plan that they're using, leave Cedric Bakambu on the bench and throw on Fiston Mayele. Bakambu is maybe more of a better, He's maybe he's better in link-up play, maybe he has a little more finesse in front of goal, but Mayele, I think, would add a lot more to the Congolese attack if he was to start. Um, DR Congo, despite them, you know, they play a 4-2-3-1, and you can almost draw their lines, you know, with a ruler and a, 
and the pencil when you watch them play. And that's a little bit problematic because, you know, you come up against a tactically strong side like Cape Verde and those players are going to find spaces between those lines um, and they're going to exploit that or even South Africa as they did with Morocco in their first goal. Um, but the good thing about DR Congo in their defensive shape is that the wingers, Yoan Wisa, Teo Bongonda, uh, Ilya Mishak, you know, that, that three in the 4-2-3-1, they do a great job of getting back. It's not at all uncommon uh, to see those players in their own final, in their own 30 meters of the pitch, uh, closing down fullbacks. Um, they d really defend as a team. Um, that's something that I think is interesting. So I think if you try to break them down with slow tempo, horizontal passing, it's not going to work. Uh, what Guinea is going to have to do is try to get through those lines uh, vertically when uh, you know when DR Congo give up possession in the opposing half. Um, what else can we say? DR Congo give up the le least amount of shots in this tournament with 27. Uh, Guinea have the least shots for and least total XG. That's a pretty damning statistic. So on one hand, you have a side that give up the least amount of shots. And to be fair, you know, They're not playing against ultra-attacking sides, DR Congo were, but they give up the least amount of shots. Guinea have the least shots for and least total XG. And Guinea, you know, DR Congo, I've said this, have yet to win a game. Guinea have yet to impress me. Um, you can see where I'm leaning with this one. I think DR Congo should be clear favorites. I think they're going to win by more than one goal. Um, not, gonna, not to say that it's going to be an easy match, but I think DR Congo are quite clearly the better side in this tournament. Uh, the matchups that I'm looking out for, Ibrahim Zakite, the right back, who I think has been man of the match on two occasions for Guinea, even though he's only received the award once, versus Yoan Wisa, who I think, I, as I explained, does a great job with his defensive work, but also has the good technical quality to create chances for DR Congo. I also want to see Mohamed Bayo, who has two goals in this tournament, go up against Chancel and Bemba. I think they're going to clash, and they're going to it's going to be a really physical battle. They're both very physical players. Um, great players in the air as well. So I think that's going to be uh, a really interesting uh, matchup to look out for. Um, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna pick DR Congo for this one. So to recap my predictions for uh, all four of the matches, Nigeria are going to be Angola. Nigeria defend better. And they, uh, I think, you know, the ketchup bottle is eventually going to be overfilled and splash all over the fries. Cape Verde are going to beat South Africa. This is my one upset. I could see this going either way. I could see this going to extra time or penalties. It's going to be very tight. Um, I just think that Cape Verde have a little more technical quality in attack. DR Congo, I think, are going to dispatch of Guinea by more than one goal. And then finally, Cote d'Ivoire are going to inch out Mali. Um, it's going to be a very tough midfield battle. But I think Cote d'Ivoire, because of the intangibles, because they're hosting the tournament, I think they're going to get through to the to the semi semi-final wow already anyways that was a very very long preview i'm sorry for uh <laughs> more than half an hour apologies i hope you enjoyed it um yeah i'm gonna leave it there for the moment again if you do enjoy this please subscribe on youtube please give us a thumbs up please let me know how you think these matches are going to go in the comments um if you're listening on audio streaming platforms do give us a five-star review that would be amazing uh, leave it there for now. Tomorrow we're going to be recapping the first day of quarterfinal matches um, and then the second day of quarterfinal matches and then I'm actually going home. So I'm leaving after the quarterfinal matches um, and I'm going to cover the rest of the tournament from Algeria. So last few days in Cote d'Ivoire for me, I'm going to be uh, 
trying to enjoy every last second of it. I hope you do too. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll speak to you tomorrow. Peace.